Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shear, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this episode, we're once more in Rome following the Julio-Claudian saga. Augustus is now Emperor of Rome, even though he's not actually referring to himself as Emperor. He's gathered up a bunch of different political, religious, and other social powers because he believes that he's the only person who can prevent Rome from collapsing on itself and bringing about another bout of civil wars. But now, he's a middle-aged man who's had health problems for a couple decades. What happens when he finally kicks the bucket or someone assassinates him? Well, he's kind of decided that his right-hand man, Marcus Agrippa, will take over, though that's not completely written in stone. However, I guess somewhat of a spoiler, I have stated multiple times on this show that the second emperor of Rome is Tiberius, not Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. So, how do we go from Agrippa to Tiberius? It's not as cut and dry as you might think. This episode will take a look at the several different candidates Augustus can choose from for his successor. It's mostly going to be his grandchildren. Just like the generations that will come before and after, Augustus's stepsons and grandchildren have their own interesting histories to unravel. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're picking up back in Rome in the early 1st century BCE in The Succession Games. <laughs> Plenty of historical figures to cover, and I don't want this to be an hour-long show, so no background history lesson this time around. If you haven't listened to the previous Julio-Claudian episodes, I recommend doing that first so you're all caught up. So let's get something out of the way first. Augustus is married to Livia, who already had one son, Tiberius, and was pregnant with her ex-husband's second son, Drusus, when she married the future emperor. Why wouldn't Augustus just pick one of his stepsons? Augustus isn't a king. No, really, guys, wink. He's not king. Double wink. Augustus was the princeps, the first citizen of Rome, so that whole bloodline thing technically shouldn't matter, right? Even though Rome wasn't big on monarchs, really ironic in this period of history, political bloodlines were very much a thing. If your father was a priest, senator, or a centurion, there was a very high probability you would also end up as one. Augustus very much knew this, so he would want a legitimate male heir, or at least a man directly related to him through blood, to inherit all the powers he had amassed over the past decades. Unfortunately, he had no sons. Livia and he never had any children together, at least any children who survived birth. Augustus's only child was his daughter from a previous marriage, Julia. Luckily, Julia was married to Agrippa, and they had several children together. And by this point, Agrippa was Augustus's second-in-command and essentially co-ruler. I guess at that point, it didn't really matter if the powers of princeps passed on to Agrippa because then the powers would pass on to one of his sons, aka the grandsons of Augustus. In 17 BCE, Agrippa was made the governor of all the eastern provinces of Rome, which would essentially be considered a trial run for his future job as leader. Unfortunately, things would not go very smoothly for long. In 13 BCE, Agrippa was beginning a military campaign along the Danube River in what would eventually become the Roman province of Pannonia. The winter of 13-12 BCE would prove to be a particularly rough one for Augustus' right-hand man, and he contracted a serious illness. 
by March, he had made it back to Italy but would eventually succumb to that illness. Augustus gave his friend all the honors of a Roman hero. Instead of burying him in the tomb Agrippa had constructed for himself, Augustus had him laid to rest in the mausoleum the emperor had commissioned for himself. Now the true game of succession was underway. Agrippa was out of the picture. By the time he died, Agrippa and Julia had given birth to two sons, and a third son was born soon after his death. Gaius and Lucius Vipsanius Agrippa were the obvious next choices, but we can't completely leave out Marcus Agrippa Posthumus, Agrippa and Julia's son born after his father's death. So how will Augustus choose to deal with his grandsons? Gaius and Lucius together because their lives ran pretty parallel to one another. Gaius was born in 20 BCE and Lucius was born three years later in 17 BCE. Very soon after Lucius was born, Augustus adopted both boys as his sons and heirs. Yeah, I led you all a bit astray by saying Agrippa was actually Augustus's presumed successor for a while. Also, yes, Augustus's grandsons were now his legal sons. But Augustus was the legal son of his great uncle, and this is ancient Rome, so it's technically not weird. And unfortunately, we don't have any records saying how Agrippa or Julia reacted to this. It's one thing to think of Agrippa's reaction, he was basically being set up as co-ruler and possible successor to the princeps. But I'm far more interested in how Julia responded to all this. After all, her sons had just legally become her brothers. Augustus kept the boys at his side and oversaw every aspect of their lives and education. He even taught them to write by copying his handwriting. And by that, I mean he wanted their handwriting to actually be identical to his, which isn't weird at all. Shortly after their adoption, Augustus held the Ludi Seculares, the secular games in English, which was a three-day, three-night-long festival that was supposed to be held approximately every 100 to 110 years. The festival was supposed to represent the coming of a new age, since a century or a century and ten years was considered the longest a human being could possibly live back then. Coupled with the adoption of Gaius and Lucius, Augustus saw the year 17 BCE as a powerful portent of success for his dreams of a dynasty. During their early years, Augustus made sure that the public was aware that these two boys were the future of Rome. They technically were given political powers and positions called consuls elect, even though they were both very much children. In 12 BCE, after Agrippa's death, Augustus went even further with his succession plans and had Gaius and Lucius represented on the gold and silver coins issued that year. Several years later, in 8 BCE, at the still pretty young age of 12, Augustus let Gaius join Tiberius on one of the latter's campaigns against the Sicambri, one of the many Germanic tribes of the era. Luckily, I guess Augustus realized it would be wrong to send a nine-year-old to a war zone, so Lucius stayed behind. In 6 BCE, Augustus really started ramping up Gaius's political career. The young man was given the honors of Consul Designatus, which meant that he would automatically become a consul when he turned 20 years old. The next year, Augustus made the young man a pontiff, meaning that Gaius was now a member of the highest class of priests in the Roman religion. 
this new position basically guaranteed Gaius the ability to attend any event in Rome he wanted, including Senate meetings. That same year, Gaius went through the passage of manhood by receiving the Toga Virilis, which was a plain white toga that designated an adult male citizen of Rome. Three years later, Augustus bestowed most of the same honors onto Lucius. The only differences were that Lucius would be allowed to become consul when he turned 19 years old and that he was made a member of the College of Augurs instead of the College of Pontiffs. An augur was a priest who divined the future and will of the gods by studying the flight of birds. And while this might seem like a step down from Pontiff, the College of Augurs was still very much important when it came to most facets of life in the new empire such as deciding the best times to begin building projects or starting military campaigns. In both 5 BCE and 2 BCE, the years Gaius and Lucius were recognized as adults, Augustus also did something he hadn't done since 23 BCE. He once more took the position of Consul of Rome. This was something people had been clamoring for for years. It's assumed that he did this to help expedite his heirs' futures as leaders of the Principate. And now that both of Augustus's grandsons slash sons were full-fledged men of the Empire, it was time for them to begin their careers, aka follow in the footsteps of the Emperor. things in the eastern provinces were heating up after the death of King Herod, aka the guy from the Bible, as well as an uprising in Armenia by the neighboring Parthian Empire. Since Augustus himself was too old to actually lead an army out east, he was 59 at the time, he decided it would be a great time to prep his adopted son Gaius for the position. Gaius wouldn't actually end up going out east until 1 BCE when he turned 18 but even by then he had been allowed to sit in on senate meetings where Augustus and others discussed the political goings-on of the East. It was also that year that Augustus had Gaius married to Claudia Livia Julia, usually known as Lavilla. She was the daughter of Drusus the Elder, the stepson of Augustus, and Antonia Minor, the daughter of Mark Antony and Augustus's sister Octavia. That made her his second cousin, which is less weird than some Julio-Claudian marriages, but still close enough to be odd. And now we finally pass over from BCE to CE for the first time in the Julio-Claudian saga. In 1 CE, Gaius was elected as consul in absentia alongside his brother-in-law, the husband of his younger sister who was known as Julia the Younger, but not for that reason. But due to the fact that he was in Turkey and Syria for most of that year, it's not really known if he actually did any real consul duties while in the military. Gaius was in a strange position as leader of the armies out east. When he was sent to Turkey, he was only 18 years old. Even though Gaius was representing Augustus, meaning everyone had to act as if his orders were coming straight from the emperor's mouth, his adopted father had still sent along a small group of advisors to oversee the operations. Still, his individual power is usually taken into consideration when it came to the successful peace negotiations with the king of the Parthians in 1 CE. The next year, Gaius was put in charge of naming a new king of Armenia after the death of the previous king. Even though Augustus approved of Gaius's choice, it did not stop a sudden new flare of revolts in the territory. In September of that year, the leader of the rebels invited Gaius to his fortress claiming he wanted peace. 
Gaius Caesar attended the meeting, only to be stabbed in the back, only slightly not literally, when the rebels wounded him in an ambush. The wound was seemingly minor, which allowed Gaius to continue with the pacification efforts in Armenia. But the wound did not stay minor for long. Let's very quickly jump over to Lucius Caesar before we figure out Gaius's fate. While his older brother was being a Roman commander out east, Lucius was beginning his own military training. Augustus decided that it would be a great idea to have Lucius train out west in Hispania, modern-day Spain. What could possibly go wrong there? Well, who knows what could have gone right or wrong in Hispania, because Lucius never actually made it that far west. In August of 2 CE, Lucius fell gravely ill while in Gaul. He never recovered and died on August 20th. The empire was shaken at the death of Augustus's adopted son, especially since he had died so young. He had only been 18 years old, he hadn't even been old enough to assume his position as consul. Despite this turn of bad fortune, at least Augustus still had Gaius. And really, I'm sure Lucius was technically a spare just in case something happened to Gaius in the first place. As the older brother, the line of succession always favored him. So let's check back in with him. Things were not great. The wound Gaius had received in Armenia had grown worse, and he was almost completely incapacitated by it. Knowing that he wasn't in any proper shape to be leading an army, Gaius withdrew from the public while staying in Syria. He also sent word to Augustus that he no longer desired to have a role in the politics of Rome. Augustus tried his best to change Gaius's mind, but it didn't help. The young man became more withdrawn as his physical and mental health declined. Augustus then finally convinced his adopted son to return to Rome. But just like with Lucius, Gaius never finished the journey. He died in a small Turkish town on February 21st, 4 CE. He had only been 23 years old. Within the span of 18 months, Augustus had lost both of his potential heirs. Both young men were given full funeral rites that included public lamentations and the closing of many businesses on the days of their funerals. The two were cremated and buried in the mausoleum of Augustus alongside Agrippa. In addition, golden spears and shields they had received as part of their ascension to adulthood were hung in the Senate. But none of this changed the fact that Augustus was now without an heir. He surveyed his options, which had now grown very few. The only men in his family were his stepson, Tiberius, and his only remaining grandson, Agrippa Posthumus. Tiberius's brother Drusus had passed away in 9 BCE, but we'll talk about that another time. At this point, Augustus didn't really want to adopt Tiberius for reasons we'll also get into another time. He was also wary of adopting Agrippa Posthumus as well because he wanted to leave at least one male heir to continue Marcus Agrippa's family. But these were uncertain times, which called for uncertain measures. I'm not going to talk about Tiberius now. We'll have a full discussion of his youth and adoption next time we come back to Rome. So let's learn a bit more about Marcus Agrippa Posthumus. As I mentioned before, Posthumus was born a few months after the death of Marcus Agrippa. 
After the death of his brothers and adoption by Augustus, his name officially became Marcus Julius Caesar Agrippa Poshmus. It's usually assumed that Poshmus was never actually in the position of becoming the next princeps slash emperor of Rome. Instead, he existed solely to continue the Julii family bloodline. He was never given the same preferential treatment that Gaius and Lucius received. At the age of 17 in 5 CE, Posthumus was recognized as a Roman adult. Again, unlike his brothers, Posthumus was not granted the many titles and promise of consulship that Lucius and Gaius had received. Instead, his name was simply added to the list of young men that were eligible to become military officers. Posthumus has often been characterized as a brutish young man who had a quick temper and a penchant for violence. He was also only really interested in fishing, which oddly, I can respect that. Someone in the Julio-Claudians had to have a simple hobby. His behavior was such a problem though that it said Augustus tried to force Posthumus to change his ways. When the emperor realized that he couldn't change his adopted son's ways, well, Posthumus very quickly was no longer Augustus's son. In 6 CE, Augustus disinherited Posthumus from the Julii family and forced him into exile in a private villa in the town of Sorrentum, which is the modern-day town of Sorrento in southwest Italy. Historian Marcus Velius Paterculus, a contemporary of Posthumus, wrote this about the events. About this time, Agrippa alienated from himself the affection of his father who was also his grandfather. Falling into reckless ways by an amazing depravity of attitude and intellect, and soon, as his vices increased daily, he met the end which his madness deserved. This exile in Sorrentum didn't last too long because the next year, Augustus made the Senate vote to make Posthumus' exile permanent. With the extended banishment came a new home for the young man, the island of Pianosa in the Tyrrhenian Sea. It is believed that at some point there was a failed attempt to rescue Posthumus from his exile. In fact, there's quite a lot of conspiracies about his banishment. For the most part, people think the actual truth of the matter is that Augustus believed the young man was dangerous. One of the accepted possibilities of what dangerous means here is that Posthumus might have suffered from some sort of cognitive disability. But if you're one to believe in conspiracies, there's always the Olivia option. That theory basically boils down to Augustus' wife desiring Tiberius to be the princeps' true successor. According to this theory, she convinced Augustus that Posthumus was unfit to stay in Rome due to his cruel nature and needed to be kept away. The only reason I can't believe this theory is because most people accept that Posthumus was never really in the running to succeed Augustus. Whatever the case for his banishment, Augustus did not attempt any form of communication with his ex-grandson for the next seven years. Possibly. You see, in May of 14 CE, Augustus was mysteriously not in Rome. The emperor, alongside his friend and senator Paulus Fabius Maximus, allegedly paid a visit to the island of Pianosa. We know for a fact that they weren't in Rome because they voted in absentia to make Tiberius' son a priest. This visit is not recorded by Augustus or Fabius, but several Roman historians wrote about it. Some of the rumors say that the emperor was beginning to have doubts about Tiberius and was hoping to switch things up by making Posthumus his successor as princeps. 
but all of this is just speculation. According to the historian Tacitus, Fabius told his wife that the pair had met with Posthumus, but the truth had cost him his life. Augustus would pass away only a few months later in August, but we'll discuss that more in a future episode. And even though Augustus had banished Posthumus and disinherited the young man, he had never done so through any legal pathway. Therefore, Posthumus was actually entitled to claim part of Augustus's estate upon the emperor's death. Unfortunately, Posthumus would never get the chance to stake a claim because, only a short while later, the blood-related grandson of Augustus was murdered. Depending on which sources you read, Posthumus' murder was orchestrated by either Augustus himself or Tiberius. On the side of Augustus, it's said that the emperor did not want his grandson to outlive him. Tiberius openly denied having any part in Posthumus' death but rumors were abound that the new princeps had had his potential rival murdered. Either way, the male heirs of Augustus were dead. The throne would pass to Tiberius. Though they were never in the running for a princeps slash empress, I also want to talk about Augustus's granddaughters because they were also very important in the overall Julio-Claudian family tree. We'll start with Julia the Younger. She was the second of Agrippa and Julia's children, so younger than Gaius but older than Lucius. Also, now's a great time to talk about women's names in Rome. In the first Rome episode we did, I made fun of the fact that so many women in this family went by Julia, but there's actually a reason for that. A classical Roman name, at least for men, usually contained three parts. The first is the prenomen, which we would usually think of in Western nations as a person's first name. Next comes the nomen. This would be similar to what we consider a surname slash last name. In Rome, it was also called nomen gentilicium, which specifically designated you as a member of a gens, aka a family or clan. After that comes a cognomen. A cognomen was sometimes another personal name or a special title, such as Magnus being chosen by Pompey Magnus and other people who wanted to be called the Great. It was also sometimes hereditary as well, such as the Caesar of Julius Caesar and his future family tree. When it comes to women's names in Rome, there was a shift in naming conventions towards the end of the Republican period where women just stopped using prenomen. Many were just not given prenomen altogether. This means that they were mostly known by their nomen and possibly a cognomen. That's why Augustus's daughter was named Julia as she was a female member of Gens Julii, and her daughter was also Julia. That's where we then get into the concept of mothers and daughters being known as the elder and the younger respectively. And when it comes to sisters, older sisters would be known as major and younger sisters as minor, such as Augustus's nieces Antonia Major and Antonia Minor. If you had more than two, that's where the cognomen would start coming in. But here's an interesting thing about Julia the Younger. She would not have been born Julia because her father wasn't a member of the gens Julii. She actually would have been born Vipsania Agrippina, or Agrippina, both pronunciations are valid, but I'll be using Agrippina in this show. But there are no records of her ever actually using that name for herself. It's generally assumed that she went by Julia because, even though she was not adopted by Augustus, Julia was also raised under the heavy influence of the first emperor and was unofficially a member of the Julio-Claudian bloodline. 
There's not too much recorded about her life, but the little that was recorded was full of intrigue and scandal. When she was 13 or 14 years old, Augustus had her arranged to marry her first half-cousin Lucius Aemilius Paulus. His mother was Julia the Elder's half-sister through their mother Scribonia. One story of her life says that she commissioned an incredibly lavish countryside manor for her family. However, Augustus himself wasn't a fan of unnecessarily large and gaudy homes and ordered it to be destroyed, which... I mean, he had the power, but come on, dude. In 8 CE, at the age of 27, Augustus had Julia exiled to the small island of Tremerius, now called Isole Tremiti, which is off the eastern coast of Italy in the Adriatic Sea. There are two stories explaining her exile. The first says that Augustus ordered it because Julia cheated on her husband with a man named Decimus Junius Silanus, who would later go into self-imposed exile. The other story of her exile says that she was exiled because her husband, Aemilius Paulus, was a conspirator in an assassination attempt against Augustus. Her husband was later executed for this crime. She was also said to have given birth to a child after being exiled, but Augustus ordered for the child to be exposed. This was a horrific practice of leaving your child in the wilderness, usually on the side of a mountain, where it would die of any number of conditions that might occur in that environment. The last bit of information said about Julia the Younger is that she died about 20 years after her exile in 29 CE. And even though Augustus was dead by this time, his grip was still on his granddaughter via his will, which stated she was not to be buried in Rome. She was survived only by her daughter Amelia Lepida, who was engaged to the future fourth emperor of Rome, Claudius, before they were forced to break up. Amelia was also Augustus's first great-granddaughter. But we can't continue down that bloodline because there's one last grandchild of Augustus to talk about, even if ever so briefly. <laughs> Agrippina the Elder, yes, she was the younger sister, but she'll have a daughter named Agrippina, and that sister is more important for the saga as a whole, was Julia and Agrippa's fourth child, and actually the most important in the long run of Augustus' grandchildren through his daughter. Since she'll get plenty of airtime in future episodes, I'll be a bit shorter with the details about her for now. When Augustus adopted Tiberius in 4 CE after the deaths of Agrippina's brothers, he made Tiberius adopt his nephew Germanicus, the son of Tiberius's deceased brother Drusus. From there, in order to further protect and build out his dynasty, Augustus arranged the marriage of Germanicus and Agrippina. Also, as a side note, I just want to say that for once this wasn't a weird, really young or big age gap wedding as Agrippina was 18 and Germanicus was 19. It means nothing in the long run, but it feels less gross to talk about. The pair had nine children together. This made everyone in the Julio-Claudian family very happy because having children and then having them survive into adulthood was difficult back then. Three of their children ended up dying before reaching adulthood, but that still left six children to continue the bloodline. And before I cut off Agrippina's story there, let's explain where she actually sits within the dynasty right now, because she's related to a lot of key players. She's the blood-related granddaughter of Augustus. Tiberius, who is about to become emperor, is her adopted father-in-law. 
Germanicus is the brother of Claudius, the fourth emperor, making him Agrippina's brother-in-law. One of her children is Gaius Julius Caesar, aka Gaius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, aka the third emperor Caligula. Another of her children is Agrippina the Younger, the mother of the fifth and final Julio-Claudian emperor Nero. Agrippina is perhaps the most important woman for the dynasty. She was held up on a pedestal for her childbearing abilities, which is not very fun to say. But still, she will essentially become the center of the wheel through which every future story in the Julio-Claudian saga extends from. As one last aside before finishing up the episode, I have to address the rumors that have abounded throughout history regarding the figures I've covered in this story. Obviously, the line of succession will now go from Augustus to Tiberius. It's been a tradition to include a Machiavellian plot by Augustus's wife Livia when talking about the family of Julia and Marcus Agrippa. These stories always boil down to one thing. Livia wanted Tiberius to be Augustus's successor so her bloodline would continue the empire. Because Livia and Augustus never actually had any children of their own, she was always eyeing Julia as Augustus's sole natural-born child. As Julia's family grew, so did Livia's jealousy and desire to put Tiberius in power. Who knows if any of these rumors are true, but almost every death in this story is usually attributed to Livia in some way. She's the one who poisoned Lucius on his way out of Rome. She told Augustus to exile Posthumus and Julia the Younger. Some people even claim that she was behind Gaius' death, which doesn't really make much sense because he was injured in battle. But Livia would eventually get her way, as Tiberius is going to be the next figure we follow in this saga. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. And that's also it for this batch of episodes. I'll be back in about a month for 10 more episodes of Royally Screwed. In the meantime, it would be nice if you could leave a rating and review wherever you listen to this show, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you've managed to find this. It's really nice to hear feedback about the show and just general comments about people saying they like it in general. Hey, even if you don't like it, just leave one anyways. But when we do come back, it's another tale of pirates. This time, though, we're going to be in China instead of the Caribbean as we learn about the three Zhang captains and how they became some of the richest and most successful pirates ever. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.